This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. Welcome to the April edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection. It's presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and promoted by Community Radio Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. Today in New Zealand and Australia is Anzac Day. This is our anniversary day and was originally observed to honour members of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps who served in Gallipoli. All the Anzacs were volunteers and the area where they fought has been renamed Anzac Cove. 14,000 New Zealanders and 50,000 Australians served in the Gallipoli campaign and almost 3,000 Kiwis and nearly 9,000 Aussies were killed in the eight months of the campaign. Now Anzac Day is a national day of remembrance, when we remember those who served and died in all wars, conflicts and peacekeeping operations. Anzac stands for Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. But just now there is a move to try and change New Zealand's name to Aotearoa, I wonder, will the ANZAC name be changed to AAAC? How would one pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Mm. Perhaps triple AAC. Yeah. <laughs> I think it will possibly stay um, still ANZAC, yeah. Mm. Well, over 20 years ago, I used to subscribe to the Orcadian, 
and now I have quite a few banana boxes full of old papers sitting in the garage. I have at last decided it's time to get rid of them, so I have been having a look through them all again before they go in the bin. I have come across some interesting articles, but one thing I have noticed which I found rather sad was that every week there was mention of something that had been vandalised. What sort of people are they that can do these things? You know, your mind boggles, doesn't mm. it? I have picked out a few pieces from these old papers that I thought might be of interest and may bring back some memories. From the Orcadian, June 1999. TV licensing officers were in Orkney last week equipped with the latest in portable detection equipment in an effort to tighten the net around license evaders. On the on their last visit, 43 evaders were caught. Licence evasion has always been a foolish risk. Evaders risk a hefty fine and a visit to the district court. I don't know if you still need a TV licence in the UK, but in New Zealand we haven't needed a TV licence for many years. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too, and I thought, why did we pay a licence? You know, it just seems such a stupid thing to, these days, doesn't I don't it? No, but I remember my dad saying, quick, turn off the TV because they're, <laughs> <'cause> they're checking. <laughs> you think, uh, yeah, so I don't know whether they still need one in the no. UK, but I'm, I'm glad we don't have It's just one less worry, isn't it? <laughs> well, there's a good film on at the moment called The Duke with Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren, and the old fellow in it is... Uh, um, against TV licensing, particularly for old age peas, oh. and uh, it's it's a lot of fun, so it's worth going to. Is that at the movies? Yes, mm. yes. Because yes, after I'd done this article, that wee bit about the TV mm. licensing, then the next paper I think it had that uh, those over seventy five, the government would pay their license. So oh, okay. I thought the government, why didn't they just wipe it? <laughs> yes. Oh, before Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then in February 1999, a British telecom decision not to provide new public telephone boxes for some rural locations in Orkney is to be appealed by a local communications committee. How things have changed. I think you would be hard pushed to find a public phone box these days. Seems I was wrong. There was a picture taken in Westray on Facebook recently and there in the middle of it was a lovely red phone box. I know sometimes mobile phone coverage is not the greatest in the islands, so maybe that's the reason for still having public phone boxes. Mm. Yes, there's always complaints going on about lack of uh, coverage here. Now, this is in March 1999. Only an Orcadian knows the joys of drinking warm liquid out of a wooden bucket, not knowing what the mixture contains and after 200 other people have slathered in it. This, <laughs> <yeah. Yuck. laughs> this is a custom at weddings for a wooden container known as a bride's cog to be filled with an alcoholic mixture and passed around for everyone to sample. I would say that just now COVID has put paid, put paid to this tradition. A few years ago, when my daughter and I attended a wedding in Orkney, she had a good supper out of the bride's, bride's cog and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> the process of cog making is almost the same as how they were made over 100 years ago. Jim Daldy of Kirkwall learnt the art from a relative and is keeping the art of cog making alive. 
How lovely. I suppose if you put enough alcohol in there, it would be gems in all the Yeah, it's a real mixture. It's not just one that, you know, they just pour anything in. And, anything to hand, well. Wow. Yeah, I can see my daughter, she had a head, you know, because it's got handles each side, and you <laughs> had it, and she had her head, nose well and truly stuck in it. Yeah, yeah gorgeous. <laughs> right. A lot of us know about the flu pandemic that swept the world after the First World War from 1916 to around 1918. But most people today don't seem to remember the polio epidemic that went round the world in 1950, a really nasty disease. And according to the Orcadian, in July 1950, two cases had been confirmed in Orkney. Mm. Yeah, they're lucky they only had two, if that was a... Yes. Did you know, at the start of World War II, there was a flying boat called Lerwick? The Saunders Row A36 Lerwick was a British flying boat built by Saunders Row Limited. It was used with the Short Sunderland in the Royal Air Force Coastal Command, but it was a flawed design and only a small number were built. They had a poor service record and a high accident rate. Of 21 aircraft, 10 were lost to accidents and one an unknown reason. They were introduced in 1938 and retired in 1942. Mm. Well, I hope there weren't too many deaths. Yeah. We haven't yeah. uh, got... No, it didn't say. Yeah. Yes. I see we can look forward to the return of a kind of flying boat around New Zealand's oh, coastline. Yes, shortly. I saw that yeah. in the paper yeah. this morning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, if you can go to Wellington mm. for $60, there'll be a rush on it, won't it? Yeah, and in <laughs> under an hour by... Yeah, yes. just Down hovering the above coast. the water. Yes. yes. Oh, you get a good view up the coast there. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? As long as you're on no, a good day. No large waves. <laughs> <laughs> you do some fishing on the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Learning to drive was L of an experience from the column Blether by Bumpkin, and this was May two thousand and five in the Orcadian. It is over 85 years since the introduction of compulsory driving tests and the displaying of L plates by learner drivers. The test, then costing seven and six, were introduced on June the 1st, 1935. The same year saw the introduction of a 30 mile an hour speed limit in built up areas. Thought cars would hardly be going 30 miles an hour, but anyhow. Mm. <laughs> and a new Ford popular car could be purchased from the Kirkwall garage of W.R. Tullock for just £100. The driving test legislation covered every far flung corner of the country, and it meant that for five decades, Isles motorists could sit their driving test on any of the Orkney Islands with a few miles of roads. For instance, the people of Shappensea, Stronsea, West Ray or wherever could become or wherever could become qualified drivers without ever encountering a pedestrian crossing, traffic lights, roundabouts or motorway signs. Having convinced the examiner of their proficiency, they could immediately travel to the Scottish mainland to drive to Edinburgh, London or round the world for that matter. Obviously, the test wasn't representative of driving conditions in a city. But the examiner could check proficiency in hand signals, hill start, emergency stop, and three-point turn. Tests were suspended during World War Two. I'd say it'd be Gosh, pretty yes. similar in um, Shetland as well. Yeah, Even before the war, there were anomalies. 
Neil Sinclair recalled a story of his father, Jock Sinclair, driving Orkney's Chief Constable, Colin Campbell, or his deputy, Garthorne Chain, in the island hire car, and having to confess that he had not yet got a driving licence because he was not old enough. You had to be 17 years old. On his 17th birthday, a driving licence arrived in the post from the Chief Constable. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the 1970s, when driving tests in the outer islands ended, requiring motorists to visit Kirkwall for the test, the government of the day made the concession that Isles learner drivers could use their vehicles without being accompanied by a qualified driver. Mm, mm. I can still remember the day I got my driver's licence. How about you girls? Yeah, I can. The very minute I turned 15. Oh, oh yeah, gosh. Those days, yeah. Yes. It's a long time back. Yes. yes. Oh, no, I just... Well, I was 20 and uh, I was sitting it on the 1st of April here in Christchurch and I decided that if when we got back and he said I hadn't passed I'd say oh this is April Fool's Day you're just having me on but I had passed oh, yeah. no no. I just I was in Kuriau which is in North Otago and I just sort of drove out to the little town up a road went up a slight hill did a stop start you know then did a three point turn drove back and got my licence that was it yeah. you might as well have been in Orkney yeah I, well, I, I wonder if we'd pass the test if we sat it now right. well I have sat another one because I had my heavy traffic license and I had to sit one to drive that and that was a bit nerve-wracking because it was on a big truck yeah. and it wasn't the truck that I'd been driving and it was another one so yes. that was a bit hair-raising but the guy was very good yeah, yes. yeah and I did get it yes. so yeah Now if you've just joined us you are listening to the Shetland and Orkney Connection on Plains FM 96.9 The programme is broadcast at 8.30 on the last Monday of each month and repeat it on Monday, two weeks later at noon. German balloonists. This was in the Orcadian in December 1910. Until the beginning of December 1910, no visitor had ever arrived in Orkney other than by boat. This all changed on the 4th of December 1910, which went down in history as the day that men first arrived in the country by air. This distinction went to two German balloon enthusiasts, They had been blown to Orkney from Germany by a strong easterly gale and it was estimated the balloon had travelled 1,500 miles. Three men had begun the trip clambering into the balloon's wicker basket for a 24-hour ascent over the German city of Munich and I'm assuming that three men clambered out at the other end. No, they didn't actually. The story goes on. (laughs) At first all went well, but then the wind increased. The balloonists decided to descend to ascertain their position. They got a glimpse of a coastline, but then the basket struck the sea with a glancing blow, with a large wave apparently sweeping away one of the men, Hermetzka, who was never seen again. According to the story of the two survivors, the balloon rose again and drifted all day, with attempts failing to alert passing ships below. Yes, I don't know what the passing ships would do, but anyhow. Long after dark, they observed lights and the balloon was deflated to attempt a landing. The basket again struck the sea and bounced back into the air. At last, however, certain that they were over land, Herr Deslier 
pulled the emergency rope to release the last gas. The balloon was still travelling at some speed and a wire fence and stone dike were torn down as the basket careered along. Eventually it settled near Park Cottage in St Ola and the men stumbled to safety. At first they thought they were in Sweden but when they pushed on the doorbell they realised they were in Britain. It was 10pm when Mr George Leonard opened his door and found two strangers in a state of collapse. Are we in England? We have come in a balloon, was their explanation. Their arrival made front-page news in the Orcadian. Herr Distier told the newspaper, Our speed must have been greater than the fastest train. Captain Jordans said he would never wish for such an experience again. For 14 hours, death stared us in the face. The Germans stayed in Orkney for three days to recover then went south on the mail steamer. They could claim to be the first men to fly to Orkney. Mm. Would have caused quite a stir up there. Good thing Mm. it wasn't during the war. (laughs) It started four years later. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Things were lively in Lerwick last week with three cruise ships paying a visit. I'm sure all the tour operators and tourist shops were very pleased to see them. Hopefully this is the start of getting back to some sort of normalcy. Puffins have also returned to Shetland and Orkney for the summer, just in time for the Mm. tourists. Mm. Great to see them, actually. (laughs) Such funny little birds. Lerwick is said to have been built on the proceeds of smuggling. In the 1600s, Dutch fishermen arrived in Shetland for the herring fishery and traded goods both legally and illegally with locals. Evidence of illicit activity can be found in a series of tunnels that run under Commercial Street. Goods such as gin, brandy and tobacco were unloaded from ships and swirled away underground to avoid customs. It's always brandy gin, alcohol, yes, tobacco, yes, isn't it? This seems to be about smuggled. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And where, where there are tunnels, that's a fairly good indicator, isn't it's it? It's been smuggling, yeah. yeah. Mm. Shetlanders with the Hudson's Bay Company, written by Lawton Johnston. In 1805, only 10 years or so after Alexander Mackenzie had crossed Canada, the King George III a British merchant ship involved in the North American maritime fur trade was ordered to stop in Lerwick to recruit Shetland men for the Hudson's Bay Company, HBC. The ship was to take on board all such men as may be engaged under supervision of Francis Heddle, writer and controller of customs, before proceeding to Stromness, the usual port of departure from Britain to Hudson's Bay. It has not yet been ascertained how many went. Up to that point, by far the greatest number of British men involved with HBC were Orcadians. However, the pay and conditions were not good, and the men of Orkney were becoming less enthusiastic for the trade. In addition, they were being sought for service in the Napoleonic Wars, so further recruits for HBC had to be found elsewhere. The company turned to other areas of Scotland, notably the Highlands, the Western Isles and Shetland. Before this date, there were probably very few Shetlanders, if any, 
involved in the fur trade in Canada. Mm. Just how many Shetlanders joined the HBC is unknown. The most extensive source of information lies in the HBC archives in Manitoba. A cursory search through the online archive of names with a Shetland connection, plus a few other sources, reveal some 75 individuals, 10 of whom cannot be identified and may have been Orcadians. There can be little doubt, however, that this is far from a complete list. For example, Isaac Cowie, 1848, from Lerwick, noted in his fascinating and very readable book that there were 12 Shetlanders aboard the ship he sailed on from Strumness to York Factory in Hudson's Bay in 1867, none of whom have I been able to identify. However, with the limited information that is readily available, several facts and assumptions can be drawn. The earliest individual to join HBC so far appears to be Dr Forbes Barclay, 1807, who contracted in 1839, while the last were in the 1950s. Five years was the standard length of contract for which two-thirds of Shetlanders signed on, returning home when the contract ended. A third stayed on for at least a further five years, of which around ten stayed for 30 years or more. more some marrying First Nation Canadians and settling. Most contracts were from 1840s to the 1870s, with just a few individuals contracting sporadically after that. During the busiest time, the taking up of contracts was not evenly spread over the years, and there appears to have been peaks around 1850, 25 men, 1861, eight men, and 1870, eight men. Perhaps there were recruitment drives or some event that sent men looking for employment. There are two cases of Shetland men breaking the contract on the sailing date. In 1849, Robert Sanderson, 1819, reneged after receiving an advance of five pounds to buy clothing. In the second half of the 19th century, most Shetlanders probably signed on through Dr John Cowie, 1813, the agent in Lerwick and father of Isaac Cowie. Another Shetlander in official position with HBC at this time was Archibald Barclay, 1786, who was secretary of the company in London from 1843 to 1855. He was an uncle of Forbes Barclay, previously mentioned. Those who joined the HBC did not become trappers or voyagers, but were generally initially employed as labourers, from which many moved up to become clerks, storekeepers and postmasters. Several were employed as crew of canoes from the unskilled middlemen, often a labourer, bowmen or steermen. Some brought their skills with them and became carpenters and blacksmiths. Of the 66 or so Shetland men identified, four were seamen or sloopers, as they were known, but it is likely that there were very many more who served in this capacity. About one-fifth of Shetlanders stayed to work where they landed at York Factory on the southwest shore of Hudson Bay, while another fifth made the journey to British Columbia. The remaining three-fifths spread out north to trading posts in Churchill and south and west to the likes of Norway House on the northern end of Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba, 
Cumberland House in Saskatchewan and into Ontario and Western Quebec. Some made it to west to Oregon and northwest to Fort Mackenzie. There are, of course, many stories attached to these adventurers, including those of Isaac Cowie and Dr. Forbes Barclay. Both feature, along with a few others, in a book called A Kist of Emigrants. While others can be found in undelivered letters to the Hudson Bay Company, men on the northwest coast of America, and there are a handful of references in the Shetland archives, as well as a few other sources. It would be fascinating to know a bit more, but it would involve a little time digging in the Hudson Bay archives in Winnipeg. I know the Hudson's Bay archives are open, and I think I've seen it on the computer where you can go and, and do that, yeah. Mm. But I had a... Break, look break. online now. Yes. I think they are, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I know they've got quite a bit there, or for Orkney anyway, but, mm. uh, but if it's the Hudson's Bay, the Shetland will be open too. Mm. But I had a great-great-uncle, I suppose it would be, who was in... might even be great-great-uncle who was in... Um, Hudson's Bay Company, and he married an American Indian mm-hmm. and brought her back to Orkney, but mm. she died, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So far, Helen, Jan, myself and our partners have managed to avoid the COVID virus. Don't know if it's by good luck or good management. It still pays to be careful and keep wearing a mask. And I know they are a nuisance, but they are for your own protection. If you have had the virus, we hope you made a good recovery with few side effects. Well, once again, our time is up. Our music is from the Selkie CD, Gone with the Wind. Oh, I'm sorry, Gone with the Flow. Gosh, can't read my own writing. Until next month, keep safe. Cheerio. Bye for now. Keep safe. Thank you.